We present John Moffat, Jeremy Clyde and Madeline Smith in Agatha Christie's Murder on the Links. Damnation! Oh, I say. Oh, dear, did I shock you? Oh, no, not in the least. I'm so sorry about my language, most unladylike and all that, but I've lost my sister. Really? That's most unfortunate. He disapproves. He disapproves of my unladylike language, of me, of my sister, which is most unfair because you haven't even seen her. But now, look here. Say no more. Nobody loves me. I am crushed. <laughs> I knew you couldn't be such a mutt as you looked. Not that I'm against a little dignified disapproval, and I like a man who can still be shocked in this day and age. You see, my sister and I are in the theatre. You're an actress? Well, I wouldn't go that far. We've got a sort of song and dance act with a bit of comic patter thrown in. It's quite a good idea, and it does get them every time. Somehow they don't expect people to be able to dance and speak. She was enchanting. A curious mixture of child and woman. Though perfectly worldly-wise, there was yet something oddly ingenuous in her single-minded determination. We're going to make money, I'm sure of it. If only she hadn't missed the bloody train. Oh, dear. <laughs> Go again. <laughs> it was a day in early June. I had been transacting some business in Paris and was returning by the morning train to London. So what do you do? I'm a sort of private secretary to an MP. Oh, that sounds so important. I'm distinctly impressed. Oh, there's really awfully little to do. Usually a couple of hours a day sees me through. It's pretty dull, too. I don't know what I should do if I hadn't something to fall back on. Your etchings? <laughs> no. I share rooms with a very interesting man. He's Belgian. He's set up as a private detective in London, now that he's retired from the police. Sometimes he lets me help him out. I just adore crime. I go to all the mysteries at the movies, and when there's a murder on, I simply devour the papers. The miles flew by. We were so absorbed in one another that we were in Calais before we realised it. Goodbye, and I'll mind my language in future. Oh, but surely you'll let me look after you on the boat. Oh, I may not be on it. I've got to find out where that sister of mine has got to. We're going to meet again, surely. Aren't you even going to tell me your name? Cinderella. Ah, Hastings, you are the eternal romantic. You see a girl on the train, you talk to her for a couple of hours, and you do not even know her name. Mon ami, you restore my faith in the absurdity of the human race. And now tell me, what is in the morning post? Um, two bills, a letter from the Boy Scouts. Ah, no doubt they wish me to deliver a lecture. And this, uh, postmarked, Merlinville-sur-Mer. Oh, let me see. Well, that's somewhere between Calais and Boulogne, isn't it? Listen to this. Dear Monsieur Poirot, I am in need of the services of a private detective. On account of a secret I possess, I go in daily fear of my life. I am convinced that the danger is imminent, and therefore beg that you lose no time in crossing to France. I will send a car to meet you at Calais if you will wire me when you are arriving. 
I shall probably need your services for a considerable period of time, as it may be necessary for you to go to Santiago. P.T. Renault. And there is a postscript. For God's sake, come. You'll go, of course. Of course. There's no time to lose. The Continental Express leaves Victoria at eleven. You will accompany me? Oh, but Poirot, I've only oh, just... Oh, come. After all, who will ever notice your absence? Who is this chap, anyway? A well-known South American millionaire. Come, let us back. At Calais, there was no car to meet us, but Poirot did not seem unduly put out and promptly hired one. A little way outside Melanville, a girl with the figure of a young goddess showed us the rough, narrow road that led to the Renault house, the Villa Genevieve. What did I tell you, Hastings? The eternal romantic. But didn't you think she was beautiful? Oh, mon ami, two people rarely see the same thing. You, for instance, saw a goddess, while I... What did you see? I saw only a girl with anxious eyes. Something's wrong. There are police everywhere. What's happening? You can't go any further, monsieur. But we have to see Monsieur Renault. This is his villa, isn't it? Yes, monsieur, it is his villa. But I'm afraid that Monsieur Renault was found dead this morning. Do you mean he was murdered? I cannot answer any questions, monsieur. Very well. Will you have the goodness to see that this is taken to the commissary at once? Uh, what is his name? Inspector Bex. My dear Monsieur Poirot, your arrival is most opportune. You have information to give which may assist us? Possibly you know it already. Were you aware that I had been sent for by the dead man? What? It seems he knew an attempt was to be made on his life. He sent for you? Mm. Well, that upsets our theories considerably. Uh, let me take you to the examining magistrate. He's in the salon. Most extraordinary. But what is this secret he mentions? What a pity he wasn't more explicit. We're much indebted to you, Monsieur Poirot. I hope you will do us the honor of assisting us in our investigation. I did not arrive in time to prevent my client's death, but I feel myself bound in honor to discover the assassin. I am sure that Madame Renault will wish to retain your services, and I am sure Monsieur Giraud of the Sûreté, whom we expect at any moment, will be grateful for your assistance. Uh, Monsieur Bex, perhaps you will be so good as to give Monsieur Poirot an outline of the case. The first sign that something was wrong was early this morning, when Francoise, an old servant, found that the front door was open. She thought that her master had gone out for a stroll. A little while later, Leonie, the young maid, went to call her mistress and found her gagged and bound, and almost at the same moment, news was brought that Monsieur Renault's body had been discovered. He'd been stabbed in the back. Where was the body found? Well, that is one of the most extraordinary features of the case. The body was lying face downwards in an open grave, just a few yards outside the villa grounds. And how long had he been dead? According to Dr. Durand, he died sometime between midnight and 3 a.m. And Madame Moreno's evidence narrows the time to after 2 a.m. Death must have been instantaneous and naturally could not have been self-inflicted. What did she tell you? Uh, we've not been able to question her. She's still under sedation. Uh, what have you gathered from the other people who live in the house? Well, the chauffeur is on holiday and Monsieur Renault's son Jacques is away. Which leaves us with the two women's servants. I was about to interview them when you arrived. I hope you will do me the honour of being present at my interrogation. Francoise Arrichet. 
You have been in service at the Villa Genevieve for a long time? I was here for 11 years with the old countess, and when the villa was sold, I agreed to stay on with it. Uh, now, I understand that when you came down this morning, you found the front door was open. Was that right? Yes, that's right. I remember that I heard him lock up last night after she left, and... Uh, I... uh, just a moment. After who had left? The lady who came to see him. And who was she? Why well, should I know? Well, I'm sure you know very well who she was, and, and you're obliged to tell the police. Who was she? I never thought I'd be mixed up with the police. Very well, I'll tell you. It was Madame Dubray. She often comes round in the evenings. Madame Dubray from the Villa Marguerite? That's the place, just down the road. Uh, so you're saying that Monsieur Renault and Madame Dubray were... Well, I'm not saying anything. She's not so young any longer, but I've seen the way men look at her when she goes down the street. And just lately, she's had more money to spend. Everyone's noticed. And can you tell us what time Monsieur Renault let her out? About 25 minutes past ten. Do you know what time he went to bed? I heard him come up about ten minutes after we did. The stairs creak so that you can hear anyone going up and down. Thank you, Francoise. That will be all. Leonie Hollande. Now, mademoiselle, I understand that it was you who admitted Madame Dobreuil last night. Not last night, monsieur. The night before. But Francoise has just told us that Madame Dobreuil was here last night. No, monsieur. A lady did come to see Monsieur Renault last night, but it was not Madame Dobreuil. This lady was much younger. And there is one other thing. And what is that? I think she was English. At least she was speaking to Monsieur Renault in English, and he was speaking English as well. When he opened the door to let her out, he said... Yes, but for God's sake, go now. Thank you, mademoiselle. Is that all? For the present. But this is most interesting. Show Monsieur Poirot the letter. The letter? The letter we found in Renault's overcoat. Ah. It was written in English and was obviously from a woman. Mm. Thank you, Monsieur Bex. Perhaps you would uh, care to read it to us, Hastings? Um. My dearest, why have you not written for so long? You do love me still, don't you? I can't live without you. Sometimes I fancy another woman is coming between us. If that is so, take care. I'd as soon kill you as lose you to another woman. I mean it. How can I convince you how much I love you? Your own adoring Bella. And what do you make of it, monsieur? It would seem to offer a very simple explanation for the murder... But crime passionnel does not really answer to the facts of the case. It does not account for the masked men or for Renault's letter to you. Though there is one other thing. And what is that? The dead man's will. Take a look. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything left unconditionally to his beloved wife, Eloise. Simply drawn up at perfectly legal. Uh, perhaps you have not noticed... The date? Yes, I noticed it. A fortnight ago... Possibly it marks his first intimation of danger. But don't you think it's a little hard on his son? It leaves him entirely dependent on his mother, and if she were to marry again... Oh, man is a vain animal. Doubtless Monsieur Renault was certain that his wife would never marry again. Or perhaps he thought it would be wiser to leave all the money in his wife's hands. The sons of rich men are notoriously wild. Oh, it may be as you say. And now, I am sure you would like to visit the scene of the crime. Hmm? Monsieur Bex will show you where the body was found. This way, gentlemen. Uh, uh, just a moment, if you please. 
that room there, is, uh, is that Monsieur Renault's study? You would like to see it? Hmm. Thank you. Ah, Monsieur Renault was evidently a man of taste and order. Everything in its place, except for the hearth rug. It is crooked. Ah. What have you found? A scrap of paper. In France, as in England, the domestics omit to sweep under mats. Do you see what it is? A fragment of a cheque. It appears to be made out to someone named Duvine. And if I am not mistaken, the handwriting is that of Monsieur Renault. Oh, I really cannot imagine how I came to overlook this. Uh, Renault's chequebook was on his desk. I remember noting that, but the last counterfoil is blank. The murdered man's body lay in a shed at the back of the house. Monsieur Renault looked to be about 50 years of age. His skin was deeply bronzed. On his face was an expression of absolute amazement and terror. Have you any idea with what weapon the crime was committed? It was left in the wound. Here it is. Yeah, it looks like a paper knife. Ah, it is remarkably sharp. A nice little tool for murder. No fingerprints? None. Monsieur? Yes? What is it? Madame is much recovered and ready to receive the examining magistrate. Well, tell Monsieur Ote and say that we will come at once. Very good, Monsieur. Monsieur Renault wore only underclothes under his overcoat? Yes. Monsieur Ote thinks that is rather a curious point. Hmm. And his overcoat is unusually long. Take care. The stairs are rather warm. And noisy, too. They creak feet to wake the dead. Servants' quarters are along there. Come in. Pray be seated, gentlemen. I hope that it will not distress you too much to tell us what happened last night. Not in the least. I know that you must act swiftly if you're to catch my husband's murderers. It might tire you less if I were to ask you questions. Now, what is the first thing you remember? I felt a hand being pressed over my mouth. The light was turned on. There were two men in the room. Can you describe them? I could see very little of their faces. They were masked. One was very tall and had a long black beard. The other was shorter and stout and... His beard was red. He was the one who was holding me. He forced a gag into my mouth and then bound up my hands and feet. And what about your husband? They forced him into the room next door. I could hear them talking in Spanish. They said something about a secret. They wanted to know where it was hidden. And then they hurried my husband out of the room. He was only half-dressed. The tall man said, One sound and you're a dead man. I must have fainted after that. And do you have any idea for what they were searching? None, whatever. Tell me, madame, had your husband shown any sign of anxiety before the attack? He seemed distracted, and he wouldn't tell me what was wrong. Were you aware that he had called in the services of a detective? A detective? Yes, this gentleman, Monsieur Hercule Poirot. Madame? I had no idea of this. I see. 
What time was the crime committed? I remember hearing the clock on the mantelpiece strike two. Ah, there's a watch on the floor. It looks as if one of the men trod on it. It's mine. It must have fallen off the dressing table. But it says seven o'clock. Uh, let me see. Hmm. The glass is broken, but it is still going. But it's only five o'clock now. It is of no importance. Are you aware that your husband had a visitor last night? No. Who was it? A lady. Indeed. Forgive me, madame, but do you recognize this? Yes. That's my little paper knife. But was that... Yes, madame. Your husband was killed with this weapon. They took it from my dressing table. It was a present from my son. It was made from a streamlined aeroplane wire. He was in the Air Force during the war. Which brings us to another matter. Where is your son now? He's on his way to Buenos Aires. My husband telegraphed him last night to tell him to go there straight away. And you know why? I have no idea. He was going overland from there to Santiago. Santiago. Everything seems to bring us back to Santiago. Um, pardon, madame, but uh, may I examine your wrists? If you wish, monsieur. Hmm. They must cause you great pain. There was a look of disappointment in his eyes. The magistrate led Madame Renault down the stairs and out to the shed to identify the body. Are you ready, madame? Yes, monsieur. Oh, oh my God. Paul, my beloved. Oh, madame. Hastings, I am an imbecile. If ever there was love and grief in a woman's voice, I heard it then. I must start again. Beck set off for the scene of the crime, but Poirot stopped by the flower beds on either side of the steps leading up to the front door. The murderer could easily have climbed up to the bedroom by that tree on the left. But they could not have done so without leaving footsteps in the flower bed. You are right. And there is not the least sign. But in the other flower bed, there are plenty of footprints. I think you'll find they are those of the gardener. Hmm. So you think they are of no importance? Not the least. Bex led us along a path bordered by a shrubbery on either side. Suddenly we emerged onto a wide stretch of open downs with a distant view of the sea. It was a golf course. The links will not be open until next month. It was the men who were working on them who discovered the body this morning. In that pit over there. But there's someone there now. Uh, my men have had strict orders to allow no one to interfere. I am not exactly no one, Monsieur Bex. And I have every right. Uh, my dear Monsieur Giro. Uh, gentlemen, this is Monsieur Giro of the Sûreté. The famous detective from Paris was already familiar to me by name. There was a distinct arrogance in his manner which showed he was fully alive to his own importance. Poirot, I know you by name. You cut quite a figure in the old days, didn't you? Crimes do not change much over the years. The police should have been prevented from trampling all over the place. But the vital evidence is still there. The external signs, that is what you seek? Of course. You see that spade? Mm -hmm. It was used to dig the grave. And those gloves at your feet? Mm -hmm. 
Reno's spade and Reno's gloves. The man was stabbed with his own dagger. His own gloves held his own spade with which his grave was dug. And uh, this piece of lead piping, did this belong to the murdered man? It may have been lying around for weeks. Anyway, it doesn't interest me. It interests me. But no matter. Uh, Monsieur Bex, what is the meaning of this white line that extends all the way around the grave? Is it the work of your men? Uh, no, Monsieur Poirot. It is part of the work on the golf course. It is the outline of a bunker. But what a curious place to bury a body. Hmm? When the men began to dig up the ground, all would be discovered. Exactly which proves that the murderers were strangers to the place. Unless, of course, they wanted the body to be discovered. <laughs> which is clearly absurd, is it not? I must admit I was beginning to worry that Poirot was losing his grip. He continued to mutter on to himself about the lead piping and the broken wristwatch. He proved that the footprints in the flower bed were made by the gardener's boots, and he did not seem in the least impressed by Monsieur Ote's discovery that Madame de Broy had paid 200,000 francs into her bank account in the last six weeks. It is getting late, but I think we should pay her a visit. It is possible that he may have told her the secret he did not confide to his wife. We walked through the cool of the evening to the Villa Marguerite. She's lived here for many years. Very quiet, very unobtrusive. And then I realized that the villa was the home of the beautiful girl with the figure of a goddess. Monsieur, what do you want? She was more beautiful than I had remembered, but deathly white and very ill at ease. She led us through to her mother's room. But what possible help can I be to you? We have reason to believe, madame, that you were an intimate friend of Monsieur Renaud. What are you saying? That you frequently visited his villa in the evening, is that so? I deny your right to ask me such a question. Madame, we are investigating a murder. I had nothing to do with the murder. We do not say that for a moment. But you knew the dead man well. Did he ever talk about any danger that threatened him? Never. Nor of any enemies he may have made in South America. He said nothing. I really cannot see why you should come to me. Cannot his wife tell you what you want to know? Sometimes, madame, a man tells his mistress what he does not always tell his wife. Have the goodness to leave my house, monsieur. We left the Villa Marguerite like a shamefaced pack of schoolboys. Ote and Bex went back to the scene of the crime. Poirot and I set off towards the Hotel des Bains in Melanville, where we had booked rooms. The French police system is marvellous. The information they possess about everyone's life... Monsieur! Is, ah, monsieur. I beg your pardon. I should not do this, I know. You must not tell my mother. Of course not, mademoiselle. Is it true that you are the detective Monsieur Renault called in before he died? Yes, it is quite true. But how did you run it? Francoise told our maid. Ah, well, mademoiselle, what is it you want to know? Is anyone suspected of the crime? Why do you want to know? Monsieur Renault was always very kind to me. It is natural that I should be interested. I see. Well, mademoiselle, suspicion at present is hovering around two persons. Two? Their names are unknown, but they are presumed to be Chileans from Santiago. And now you see what comes of being young and beautiful. I have betrayed professional secrets for you. Come, Hastings, we must be getting back to our hotel. Goodbye. 
Mademoiselle. Goodbye, monsieur, and thank you. <sighs> Nowhere to hang my clothes. No one to polish my shoes. You, you are not listening to me, Hastings. What was that? Ah, uh, I have seen that look on your face before. Do not set your heart on Mademoiselle Dobroy. She is not for you. She has the face of an angel. Mm. Some of the greatest criminals I have known had the faces of angels. A malformation of the little grey cells may coincide quite easily with the face of a Madonna. You can't suspect that poor innocent girl. If only I could remember where I had seen that face. Mademoiselle Mart? No, 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 no. Her mother's. It was a long time ago when I was still with the police in Belgium. I have never actually seen her before, but I have seen her picture, and I rather fancy... Well, I may be mistaken, but I fancy it was a murder case. We were up at the villa early next morning. Poirot started to draw out the young maid, Leonie, on the subject of a quarrel she had overheard between Monsieur Renault and his son. I was dusting the salon and I saw him pass, and his face was white, white with two burning spots of red. I had a mind to take another look at the scene of the crime. I fought my way through the shrubbery and found myself on the links, some hundred yards away from where the murder had been committed. A young lady was standing with her back to me, gazing out towards the sea. She turned and looked at me. What are you doing here? Cinderella. When I last saw you the day before yesterday, you were going home to England like a good little boy. When I last saw you, you were trotting home with your sister like a good little girl. How is your sister? How kind of you to ask. She's quite well, thank you. She is here with you? She remained in town. I don't believe you've got a sister. What are you doing here, anyway? Resting, I suppose you've heard of the term. And what are you doing here? You remember that I told you I had a great friend who was a detective? I remember. And perhaps you've heard of this murder at the Villa Marguerite. You don't mean to say you're on that. As a matter of fact, I am. Oh, then you must take me to see everything. How do you mean? The place where it happened and the murder weapon and any fingerprints or interesting things like that. I've never had a chance of being right in on a murder like this. Oh, please. I didn't need much persuasion. I told her most of what I knew. I showed her where the body had been discovered. I even got the key of the little shed and showed her the body itself. Oh, it's horrible. To think that a few hours ago he was still alive. Do they know how he was killed? He was killed with a dagger. It's in this glass jar here. Oh, there's blood on it! My God! No, let's get you out of here. It's been too much for you. No. I'll be all right. Get me some water quickly. I rushed off to the house... Fortunately, none of the servants was about, and I was able to secure a glass of water unobserved and add a few drops of brandy from my pocket flask. Oh, thanks. Oh, that's better. Why did you let me go in there? Because you insisted. It was your idea. I suppose it was. Well, I'd better be off. Uh, but you can't go just like that. You're, you're not well. Nonsense. I'm quite all right now. Uh, won't you let me come with you? There is nothing wrong with me, I assure you. You've been very kind. I hope you won't get into trouble for showing me things. Don't give it a second thought, but, but you haven't told me your address. Oh, I'm staying at the Hotel de Far. It's a little place, but quite good. 
Come and look me up tomorrow. It wasn't until I got back to the villa that I realised I still didn't know her name. I found Poirot in the drawing. What do you see there? A cigarette end and a match. And what does that tell you? It tells me nothing. Obviously, you haven't made a study of these things. Oh. It is no ordinary match. It comes from South America. Luckily, it was unlit. Otherwise, I might not have recognised it. Evidently, one of the assassins threw away his cigarette and lit another, spilling one match out of the box as he did so. And the other match? Which match? The one he did light his cigarette with. You have found that also. It is of no importance.、Mm. The cigarette end is enough. It is a South American cigarette with licorice pectoral paper. But it is only four years since Monsieur Renault returned from South America. Might not the cigarette and match belong to him? No. I have already searched among the effects of Monsieur Renault. His cigarettes were quite different.、Uh, tell me, Monsieur Giraud, does nothing strike you as familiar about this case? Is there nothing it reminds you of? I can't say offhand. I don't think so. Nevertheless, a crime almost precisely similar has been committed before. When and where? Ah, that unfortunately I can't for the moment remember, but I shall do so. I hoped you might be able to assist me. There have been many affairs of masked men. Ah, man is an unoriginal animal. If he commits a crime, any other crime he commits will resemble it closely. The English murderer who disposed of his wives by drowning them in their baths is a case in point. Where is all this getting us? When you have two crimes, precisely similar in design and execution, you find the same brain behind them both. I am looking for that brain, Monsieur Giraud, and I shall find it. Oh, I'm sorry, Monsieur, but he insisted. Forgive me for disturbing you. Who the devil are you? What do you mean by bursting into the room? I suspect he has every right to do so. You are Jacques Renault, isn't that so? That is correct. So you did not sail on the Anzora. The ship was delayed for twenty-four hours by engine trouble. I happened to buy an evening paper and saw the report of my father's death. Sit down, Monsieur Renault. It must have been a terrible shock for you to learn the news as you did. I hope you will not feel that we are too insensitive. I am at your disposal. Ask me any questions you please. I understand that the journey was undertaken at your father's request. That is so. Here's the telegram he sent. Proceed immediately, Cherbourg, Anzora, sailing tonight, Buenos Aires. Ultimate destination, Santiago. Further instructions await you at Buenos Aires. You have been a good deal in South America, I think. I was there as a child, but I was educated in England, and when the war came, I served in the Royal Flying Corps. If you will permit, I would like to put a question to Monsieur Reno. By all means, if you wish. Were you on good terms with your father? Certainly, I was. So there is no truth in the assertion that you had a violent quarrel with him on the eve of your departure for Paris. We did have an argument. And did you say something like? When you are dead, I can do as I please. I must request an answer. I dare say I said that. I was very angry. And what was the subject of your quarrel? I decline to answer that. Monsieur Renault, it is not permitted to trifle with the law. I will inform you if you like, Monsieur. You know Poirot? Certainly, I do. The subject of the quarrel was Mademoiselle Marthe Dobray. How the devil do you know that? <laughs> is that so, Monsieur? Yes, it is. 
I love Mademoiselle Dubray, and I wish to marry her. When I informed my father of the fact, he flew at once into a violent rage. Well, naturally, I couldn't stand having the girl I love insulted, and I, too, lost my temper and said what I said. You were aware, then, of the terms of your father's will? I knew he'd left half his fortune to me and the other half to my mother to come to me after her death. Do you recall an unusual present you gave to your mother, a paper knife? The one I made from aeroplane wire. It was the weapon which killed your father. May I see it? Your mother has already identified it, but, but of course you shall see it. If I might trouble you, Monsieur Beck? Certainly. I will fetch it immediately. In the meantime, let me put another question to you. Are you acquainted with the name of Duveen? Duveen? Bella Duveen. It means nothing to me. Perhaps you would care to read this letter. We found it in your father's overcoat. Can you give us any clue as to the identity of the writer? I have no idea whatsoever. Uh, does my mother... As yet, no. Monsieur le juge. Yes, what is it? The dagger has gone. What do you mean? But I saw it this morning. You saw it, Captain Hastings? There was nothing for it but to make a clean breast of it. Under the circumstances, they were quite remarkably forbearing. Giro even congratulated me on providing him with a vital clue. But it was Poirot's opinion that I dreaded. He seemed remarkably unconcerned and was more interested in measuring the length of Jack Renault's overcoat. Hmm, most satisfying. What were you hoping to learn by measuring it? To see how long it was. Oh. Oh, tell me, my friend, what are your thoughts about the case? To tell you the truth, I'm very worried about Madame Renault. There's something about her that doesn't quite ring true. You are right. From the beginning, I have been sure that she was keeping something back. At first, I suspected her, if not of inspiring, at least of conniving at the crime. Why? By the new will, she is the only person to benefit from her husband's death. You may have noticed that I took an early opportunity of examining her wrists. Yes. I wished to see whether there was any possibility she had bound herself. And had she? The cords had been drawn so tight as to cut into the flesh. There was no possibility she could have done it. But still there was something familiar about the story of the masked men and the secret. And there was the little matter of the wristwatch. What about it? Now, it is time to employ the little grey cells, my friend. When did the crime take place? Well, Madame Renault said she heard the clock strike two while the men were in the room. And she was lying. The crime took place at least two hours earlier. For some reason, it was imperative that it should appear to have taken place later than it actually did. You have heard of a smashed watch recording the exact hour of the crime? Yes, but the watch... The glass was broken, but the mechanism of the watch kept going, which drew my attention to two important points. First, that Madame Renault was lying. Second, that there must be some vital reason for the postponement of the crime. And that reason may have been that the last train left Merlinville at 17 minutes past 12. So that if the crime appeared to have taken place two hours later, anyone leaving by that train would have an unimpeachable alibi. Exactly. Well, so we must inquire at the station. They can't have failed to notice two foreigners who left by that train. Oh, oh, oh my friend. Surely you do not believe all that rigmarole about the masked men? But Renard's letter, the secret, and Santiago... I'll take my word for it. Santiago is a red herring. The danger that threatened him was near at hand in France. Well, then what? really happened. Only one person could tell us that. Madame Renault. 
As I said, I suspected her at first, but what made you change your mind? Her spontaneous grief at the sight of her husband's body. I could swear that was genuine. And she actually fainted. Oh, it was no fake. Tell me, Hastings, what is the explanation of the open door? I suppose it was simply an oversight. There is something about it which for the moment I cannot fathom. But one thing I am fairly certain of, they left by the window. But there were no footprints in the flower bed underneath. No, and there ought to have been. In the other bed, there were plentiful impressions of the gardener's big hobnail boots. In the other, none. Someone had smoothed over the surface with a rake. But I must be going. The train to Paris leaves at 2.25. Why are you going to Paris? To look for the murderer of Monsieur Renault. I shan't be away long. Stay here and cultivate the society of Jacques Renault. Which reminds me, how did you know about him and Mart de Broglie? Oh, my friend, I know human nature. Throw together a boy like young Renault and a beautiful girl like Mademoiselle Marthe, and the result is almost inevitable. And remember, she has anxious eyes. What do you mean by that? I fancy, my friend, that we shall see before long. But I must be on my way. I'll come and see you all. You'll do nothing of the sort. I forbid it. There was nothing I could say to that, so I let him go. I strolled down to the beach in the hope that Cinderella might be disporting herself in some wonderful costume, but there was no sign of her. So I decided to try the Hotel du Phare. I'm sorry, but there's no such lady staying here. But the lady told me herself. She must have made a mistake. There's been another gentleman here inquiring for her. He described her in just the same way. What was he like? He was a small, plump gentleman, very neat, with a stiff moustache. So that was why he refused to let me accompany him to the station. I felt angry and betrayed. Why did he have to meddle in everything? I went to bed that night in a distinctly bad humour. The following morning was heavy and overcast, and an unwelcome surprise awaited me at the Villa Genevieve. It is terrible. There is a curse upon the house. They should send for Monsieur le Curé to bring some holy water. Never will I sleep another night under this roof. But what has happened? Have you not heard? There's been another murder. Who has been killed? How should I know? He is a stranger. They found him up there in the shed, not a hundred yards from where they found poor Monsieur Renault. And that is not all. He was stabbed with the same dagger. I am expecting the doctor at any moment, although we hardly need him. When was it done? Last night? I don't lay down the law on medical evidence, but the man's been dead well over twelve hours. When did you say you last saw that dagger? About ten o'clock yesterday morning. Then it was probably not long after that. The body was dragged in here after the killing by two people. They've been careful to obliterate their tracks... But I can see well enough the unmistakable prints of a woman's shoe. Uh, she is here, monsieur. Show her in. Madame Renault, this is the man. Do you know him? No. I have never seen him in my life. You do not recognize him as one of your assailants? No. I do not think so. Thank you, madame. That is all. The doctor is here. Good morning, monsieur Gerard. At last. 
We will leave you to get on with your work. Come, Mr. Hastings. There's something I want to show you. Just take a look at this. A woman's hair. It was wrapped round the handle of the dagger. A long black hair. Does it suggest anything to you? Well, I scarcely... It suggests to me Madame de Breuil. But there will be time enough to go into that. I shall confront her and her daughter with the body. But there is something else. Did you look at the victim's hands? No, I can't say that I did. The nails were broken and dirty, and the skin was hard. They were not the hands of a gentleman, but he was dressed as one, and none of his clothing is marked. Monsieur Gerard. Well, Doctor, was I right? The man was killed shortly after ten yesterday. Monsieur Gerard, that man has been dead for at least 48 hours, and probably longer. The whole thing was utterly fantastic. And then a telegram arrived from Poirot. His train would arrive at Melanville at 12.28. And needless to say, it was late. It occurred to me that I might pass the time by asking a few questions as to who had left by train on the night of the murder. No, monsieur, there were no foreigners. Very few people took the train. I would certainly have noticed. But did young Monsieur Renault leave by that train? Oh, no, monsieur. What possible reason could he have for arriving and departing within half an hour? You mean that he arrived at Melanville that evening? By the last train, 11.40. Ah, mon cher ami, how good of you to come and meet me. Oh, I thought that was what you expected. Now, I have succeeded beyond all expectations. Congratulations. Have you heard the latest here? No, how could I possibly hear anything? We must go up to the villa at once. Hmm? There has been another murder. Another murder? Ah, oh, then all my ideas are wrong. I have failed. It demolishes my theory. It ruins everything. Oh, no, no, no. It is impossible. I cannot be wrong. Unless... Unless what? Unless the victim is a man of middle age, his body was found in the locked shed near the scene of the crime and had been dead at least 48 hours. Oh, you're pulling my leg. You've heard all about it already. Would I do such a thing? No, I assure you that I have heard nothing whatsoever. Well, then how on earth can you know that? I was right then. <laughs> the little grey cells, they told me. Come, let us cut across the golf links. I want to take a look at the body. Why are you so interested in a bundle of rags? What do you make of them? Old clothes of the gardeners. If you say so. Uh, Dr. Durand. What is it? There is foam on the lips. You observed it? I didn't notice it, I must admit. But you observe it now? Oh, certainly. It is a very strange wound. It has not bled. Now, what do you think, Doctor? And the dagger is slightly discoloured, that is all. I agree, it is most abnormal. It is not abnormal at all. It is perfectly simple. The man was stabbed after he was dead. You noticed, of course, Monsieur Giraud. <laughs> Certainly I noticed. Mm. But how was he killed, Poirot? He was not killed. He died. He died, if I am not much mistaken, of an epileptic fit. Poirot was the hero of the hour, but he was terribly concerned that his moustaches had grown limp in the heat of the railway journey, and we returned to the hotel. Ah! Mm. And just look at my tie. It is a disgrace. 
Um, could you pass me the pomade? Uh, here you are. Why did you go to Paris? To find this newspaper cutting. You recognize the photograph? Madame Dobroy. No, no. Not quite correct, my friend. She did not call herself by that name in those days. That is the notorious Madame Beroldi. Madame Beroldi? Do you remember the name? Wasn't she the one who was accused of murdering her husband? Just so. She was found in her bedroom, bound mm. hand and foot, with her husband dead beside her, and mm. there was some story about masked mm. Russians, but... Mm. Yes, that's just like... No, 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 no. Do, do not agitate me. The moustaches are at a critical point. And there were two other men in the case, a lawyer called George Connor, mm. who was supposed to have been her lover, and a rich American called... Um... Hiram P. Trapp. And she was supposed to have got Connor to murder her husband so that she would be free to marry the millionaire. Ah. And, and when Connor found that he had been used by her, he wrote to the prosecutor making a public confession. He was never found, and she somehow or other was acquitted. She swore that she had nothing to do with the planning of the crime, that Connor had killed her husband out of love for her, and that the first she knew of it was when she saw Connor standing over her with the blood-stained knife in his hand. But didn't they prove she could easily have got out of her bonds? They did, but she was a very beautiful woman, and her address to the jury was a masterpiece. She had a small child, I remember. A little girl. Whatever became of her? She left to begin a new life in Paris. And nothing more was heard of her. I see everything now. What exactly do you see? Well, that it was Madame de Broglie who murdered Renault. Why? What? Why should she murder Renault? Well, uh, because... Uh... Uh, you see, we can find no shadow of a motive. She does not benefit by his death. Considered as a mistress or as a blackmailer, she stands to lose. You can't have murder without a motive. And there is something that you are forgetting. And what's that? It was not Madame Dubreuil who told us this tale of being tied up by masked men. It was Madame Renault. And so, we draw nearer to the truth, which is, as always, very curious and interesting... What else have you found out? I have discovered what Monsieur Renault sent for me to discover. And you know the murderer? I know one murderer. What do you mean? That we have here not one crime, but two. The first I have solved. The second, I must confess I am not sure. But I thought you said the man in the shed died a natural death. Ta -ta -ta -ta. Still you do not understand... One may have a crime without a murderer, but for two crimes, it is essential to have two bodies. Um, enter. Monsieur Jacques, please come in. You got my little note? Yes, I did. I'm sorry to oblige you to come out here, but you will perhaps understand the atmosphere of the villa is not very congenial to me. Monsieur Giraud and I do not see eye to eye. I can't bear the sight of him. He's an arrogant idiot. Then may I ask a little favour of you? Well, certainly. Would you be so kind as to go to the railway station and take a train to the next station along the line, Abalak? Ask at the cloakroom where the two foreigners left a case there on the night of the murder. Will you do that? Well, certainly, I will. There is a train in a quarter of an hour, and I must ask you... Not to return to the villa, as I have no wish for Giro to get an inkling of your errand. I'll go straight to the station. Yeah, uh, uh, just a moment. There is one other thing. 
Why did you not tell Monsieur Ote that you were in Merlinby on the night of the murder? Because I was not in Merlinby. I was in Cherbourg. But the staff at the railway station say you arrived by the 11.40 train. Do they? Are you accusing me of murdering my father? I should like an explanation. I came to see my fiancée, Mademoiselle de Bray. I was about to go away for a long time. I did not want the whole world to know about us. And did you see her? Yes. And afterwards? I found I'd missed the last train. I walked to Beauvais and got a car to take me to Cherbourg. A long walk at that hour of night. Oh, thank you, Monsieur Jacques. And now, if you would be so kind as to carry out my little errand. Of course. Au revoir, Monsieur Poirot. Mm -hmm. What was all that about? Why are you sending him off to Abalac? Oh, come, Hastings. Surely it is obvious. Oh, you want to get him out of the way? Ah, your penetration is amazing. Now, let us go up to the Villa Genevieve. But we did not go straight there. Instead, Poirot decided that we should hang about outside the Villa Marguerite, hoping that Mademoiselle Marthe might come into the garden. And, eventually, she appeared. Mademoiselle, a little word with you. What is it, Monsieur Poirot? You remember asking me if anyone were suspected of the crime? Yes, Monsieur. You said they were looking for two Chileans. If you were to ask me that question again now, I should give you a different answer. Who then? Jacques Renaud. But that's impossible. You know, of course, that he was here on the night of the murder. Yes, he told me. It was unwise of him to have tried to conceal the fact. Yes, but we cannot waste our time on regrets. He is innocent and we must save him. Uh, Mademoiselle, is there something that you are keeping back that you could tell us? Yes, there is something, but I hardly know whether you will believe it. At any rate, tell us. On the morning of the day Monsieur Renault was killed, I was walking here in the garden when I heard a sound of men's voices quarrelling in the garden of the Villa Genevieve. I pushed aside the bushes and looked through. One of the men was Monsieur Renault, and the other man was a tramp, a dreadful creature in filthy rags. He was asking for money. At that moment, Maman called from the house, and I had to go. When the second corpse was found, Monsieur Giraud insisted I looked at it. I am almost sure that the tramp and that dead man are the same. But why did you not say so at the time? The body was dressed in gentleman's clothes. It was only afterwards Mark, that I... where are you? Forgive me, I must go. Hmm. Well, let us go back to the Villa Hastings. Is she just trying to divert suspicion from her lover? It is a curious tale. But I believe it to be the truth. And she inadvertently gave us the truth on another point. She did not say that Jacques Renault had been with her on the night of the crime. She simply said, he told me. If he did not see her, then who did he see? The Villa Genevieve seemed deserted. Poirot led me swiftly to Jacques Renault's room and very methodically started to search through the cupboards and the desk. 
What is it? A car's just driven up. It's, it's Giro with Jack Renault and two gendarmes. Oh, that stupid animal could not wait. I shall not be able to replace the things in this drawer with the proper method. But ah, I have found what I want. Come. What is happening? Where are you taking my son? He is under arrest for the murder of his father. What? It's not true. It can't. Before anyone could get to her, she fell heavily down the stairs. Poirot was instantly at her side. She has cut her head badly, and I fancy there is slight concussion here. But she must make a statement. Then you will have to wait. She will probably be unconscious for at least a week. A doctor was sent for, and we left Madame Renault in the capable hands of Françoise. Giraud went off with his captive. Poirot decided he wanted sea air. We will sit on this little mound and review the case. Do you believe Jack is guilty? There is just a chance of it. But Giro, of course, has got it wrong. The gravest charge against Jacques Renault is known only to me. What is that? Now, if you would use your little grey cells and see the whole case as clearly as I do, you too would perceive it. Think, my friend. Arrange your ideas. Be methodical. Um, there is one thing. Well? There's someone we've forgotten. And who is that? George Connor. Excellent. Carry on. Well, he disappeared 20 years ago, but we've no reason to suppose he's dead. Proceed. Therefore, we will assume that he is alive. Perhaps. Or that he was alive until recently. Better. Let us presume that he's fallen on evil times. He's become a tramp. And quite by chance, he comes to Melanville. And there he finds the woman he never ceased to love. Ah, always the romantic. No, no, no. Let, let me go on. He finds that she has a new lover, Monsieur Renault. He lies in wait for him as he comes to meet his mistress and stabs him in the back. There's a terrible scene with Madame de Broglie and he suddenly falls down in an epileptic fit. Jacques Renault suddenly appears... Oh, no, 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 no. This is a tale for the cinema. It bears no sort of resemblance to everyday life. Well, I admit I haven't got into all the details, On but I... the contrary, you have ignored every one of them. Now, let us start from the basic fact of Georges Connaud. It is possible that he contrived Madame Berroldi's story about being tied up by Russians all those years ago. Mm. It is equally possible that he contrived the tying up of Madame Renault. He is the most likely person to be behind the affair. Now, let us go through the case chronologically. You have a notebook and pencil? Yeah. Good, good. 23rd of May. Monsieur Renault quarrels with his son over the latter's wish to marry Martha Dobray. Son leaves for Paris. 24th of May. Monsieur Renault alters his will, leaving entire control of his fortune in his wife's hands. 7th of June. Quarrel with Tramp in Garden. Letter written to Hercule Poirot imploring assistance. Telegram sent to Jacques Renault telling him to proceed to Buenos Aires. Chauffeur sent on holiday. Visit of a lady that evening. But who was she? The woman called Bella Duveen, his mistress. And how do we know that? By the letter found in his overcoat. But what makes you think that letter was written to him? Well, it was in the overcoat. Are you suggesting it was planted? I am suggesting it was not his overcoat. Huh? You remember that on examining the dead man's overcoat, I suggested that it was over long? I also measured the overcoat of Jacques Renault. It was short. So, 
when he flung out of the house for Paris after the row with his father, he took the wrong overcoat. So the the letter was written to Jack Renault. Exactly. So now we know why Belle Duvin came to the villa that night. Though whether she hoped to see Jack also, we do not know. She told Monsieur Renault she had a claim on Jack and showed him letters Jack had written to her. The older man tried to buy her off by writing a check, which she tore up. In the end, he got rid of her and. You remember the words overheard by the maid Leonie? Yes, yes, but for God's sake, go now. He was desperately anxious to get her out of the way. Time was slipping by, and for some reason, time was precious. Why should it be? That is what we must ask ourselves. Time was important. Do not forget the incident of the wristwatch. You always keep coming back to that. I, I don't see where all this is leading us. Why can't you simply tell me who killed Monsieur Renault? That is just what I am not sure of. That's typical. You ridicule all my ideas, but when it comes down patience, to... my friend. Remember, it is two crimes we are investigating. For which, whom do we believe to have planned the crime? You've just told me, George Connor. And we know the crime to be a fake. And that Madame Renault is lying to protect someone, perhaps her son, perhaps the man she loves. But if Renault planned the crime and she did it for the man she loved, then she loves George Renault. If you look at it like that, who then is George Renault? The tramp. Have we any evidence to show that she loved the tramp? No. No. Ask yourself. Whom Madame Renault did love? Whom did she love so dearly that when she saw his dead body, she fell down in a faint? Her husband. Her husband. Or Georges Conneau. Whichever you like to call him. But that's impossible. How impossible? Because it would mean that Renault planned his own murder. Well, mon ami, that is exactly what he did do. But how could any man in his right There mind? There is one detail that perhaps escapes you. He did not intend to die. It is almost simple, really. George Conneau flies from Chastis to Canada. There, under an assumed name, he marries and goes to South America, where he acquires a large fortune. Twenty years elapse, and he deems it safe to return to Europe. And ill fortune, or obscure justice, if you wish. Takes him to Merlinville, and to the one person in the whole of France who is capable of recognizing him, Madame Dobreuil, and she bleeds him heavily. Then, the inevitable happens. Jacques Renault falls in love with Marthe Dobreuil and determines to marry her. The life that Renault has rebuilt as Renault is about to collapse like a house of cards. There is only one way of escape. Death. He must appear to die, in reality escaping to a foreign country where he will start again under yet another assumed name, and where Madame Renault would eventually join him. But where were they going to get the body from? Oh, who knows? Chance played into their hands. A violent and abusive tramp finds his way into the garden. There is a struggle, and the tramp falls down in a fit and dies. But he didn't look in the least like George Connor. Exactly. So the identification must rest solely on Madame Renault's evidence. 
the chauffeur and Jacques Renault are both got out of the way, and having heard of me as a rather obscure elderly detective, he wrote his appeal for help, knowing that when I arrived, the production of the letter would have a profound effect. So, they dressed the body in a suit of Renault's clothes, and Renault, or Conno, or whatever you call him, was going to shuffle off on the last train dressed in the tramp's clothes. So he binds and gags Madame Renault, and then slips out in his overcoat to bury the body on the golf course where it will easily be found. Excellent. Just so. Well, then what happened? Then the justice that he had so long eluded overtakes him. An unknown hand stabs him in the back. Now, Hastings, you understand what I mean when I talk of two crimes. What about the piece of lead piping? Ha! Bravo! You remember it. To disfigure the victim's face so that it would be unrecognizable. And the dagger? There must have been two daggers then. Yes. They stabbed the tramp with one dagger to give credence to Madame Renault's tale. The second killed Conneau himself. Jacques must have had two daggers made. So, what now? Now we must start all over again. What time is the afternoon boat from Calais? About five, I believe. That will do very well. We shall just have time. Why are we going back to England? To find a possible witness. Who? Miss Bella Duvin. I think I shall be able to find her, particularly with the help of this photograph. He had found it in Jack Renner's desk. With love from Bella was scrawled across the corner, but it wasn't that that made my blood run cold. The likeness was not first rate, but for all that, it was unmistakable to me. It was the face of Cinderella. The Dulcie Bella Kids. That was the name she and her sister were known by. And Poirot tracked them down to a nasty little theatre in Coventry. There she was. There they both were. One flaxen-haired, one dark. Matching as to size, with short fluffy skirts and big bows in their hair. They danced and did quite tricky acrobatic feats. Charming, don't you agree? Oh, I don't think I can sit through the rest of the bill. I need a breath of fresh air. I'll see you back at the hotel. I'll go by all means, mon ami. I shall stay to the end. It was only a few steps from the theatre to our hotel. I took a large whiskey and soda up to the sitting room and sat staring into the dwindling fire. Suddenly, I was aware of someone standing behind me. I saw you in front. When you got up to go, I slipped on a cloak and came after you. What are you doing here? Was the man with you the detective? Yes. Is he looking for me? Oh, don't cry. Please don't cry. You're safe with me. I'll take care of you. Look, I know everything. Oh, no, but you don't. I think I do. Why did you take the dagger? I was afraid there might be fingerprints on it. Are you going to give me up to the police? Of course I'm not. Why not? Because I love you. You can't. Not if you know. What do you know, then? Well, I know that you came to see Renault that night. He offered you a check and you tore it up. And then you left the house. Go on. What then? I don't know whether you knew Jack Renner would be coming that night, but you waited. Just before twelve, you saw a figure on the golf links, and you recognised the overcoat as Jack's. Go on. 
You had threatened to kill him in your letter, and now you knew about Mart. You plunged the dagger into him. I, I don't believe for a moment that you meant to kill him. You're right. I can see it all as you tell it. And you say you love me. Knowing what you do, how can you love me? I don't know. I think love is like that, a, a thing one cannot help. I don't ask for anything in return. Love him still if you want to, but let me help you. That's that's all I ask. You think that I love Jack? Not as I love you. Never as I love you. Oh, Cinderella. What a pretty picture. Poirot. Help me. Quick, I'll hold him. Up, Hastings. Is this not a little high-handed? Get out of here, Cinderella, as fast oh. as you can. Oh. Oh, mon ami, you do this sort of thing very well. The strong man holds me in his iron grasp, and I am helpless as a child. <laughs> but all this is uncomfortable and slightly ridiculous. Let us sit down and be calm. You won't go after her. Am I, Giro? Let me go. <sighs> Without doubt, I shall be able to find her when the time comes. I suppose I haven't got the right any more to ask what happens next. On the contrary. We are going back to France without delay. We? Oui. Of course. You know very well you can't afford to let Papa Poirot out of your sight. We crossed the channel by the morning boat and went straight back to the Hotel des Bains. A letter had been left for Poirot at the reception desk. Dear Monsieur Poirot, if you get this, I beg of you to come to my aid. I have no one to turn to, and at all costs, Jack must be saved. I implore you on my knees to help us. Marthe d'Aubray. You'll go? At once. I was in despair. I had no idea what to do. They won't even let me visit Jacques in prison. I'm going mad. Is it true what they say, that he doesn't deny the crime? I fear so, mademoiselle. But it's impossible. He couldn't have done it. I don't believe no, it. Neither do I believe it, mademoiselle. But then why doesn't he speak? I don't understand. Perhaps because he is screening someone. Screening someone? Do you mean his mother? <laughs> I suspected her from the very beginning. Who inherits all that vast fortune? She does. It is easy to wear widow's weeds and play the hypocrite. Mademoiselle, if we are to work together, we must have things clear. First, I will ask you a question. Yes, monsieur. Are you aware of your mother's real name? <laughs> are they there? No, no, no. Calm yourself, Petite. I see that you do know. Now, a second question. Did you know who Monsieur Renault really was? Monsieur Renault? Ah, I see you do not know that. Then I shall explain a few of the facts to you, but I must be brief. We have to go to Saint-Omer to be present when Jacques is brought before the court. Please save him, monsieur. I love him so. Save him. Save him. I know. Do you deny that you were in Merlinville on the night of the crime? I have told you that I was in Cherbourg. He was a changed man. His cheeks had fallen in and there were deep black circles round his eyes. He made no attempt to defend himself. It was obvious to me that his only concern was to conceal anything that might incriminate Bella. 
I have no alternative but to commit you for trial. Monsieur Otey, I swear that I did not kill my father. Monsieur le juge, Monsieur le juge. How dare you disturb the sitting of the court? There is a lady here who, who says... Who says what? This is highly illegal. Get out. But a slender figure, dressed all in black, her face hidden by a long veil, had made her way into the courtroom. You are the juge d'instruction, Monsieur Otey. She raised her veil, and I was seized with fear. But though as like her as two peas, this was not Cinderella. It was the face I had seen in the photograph Poirot had found in Jack Renault's room. My name is Bella Duvine. I wish to give myself up for the murder of Monsieur Renault. There is a letter for you, mon ami. I suspect it is from your little acrobat. My friend, you will know all by the time you get this. Nothing that I can say will move Bella. She has gone to give herself up. You will know you now know that, that I, I deceived, deceived you. And that where you gave me trust, I repaid you with lies. But once I knew that you thought I was Bella and that you intended to save me, I knew I had to use you to help me save her. So I went on lying. But as soon as Bella read in the paper that Jack had been arrested, it was all up. I'm very tired. I can't write any more. Dulcie Duveen. And you mean to say you knew all along? Yes, my friend. Why didn't you tell me? To begin with, I could hardly believe it conceivable that you could make such a mistake. The sisters are very alike, but by no means incapable of distinguishment. Why didn't you tell me that night in the hotel in Coventry? Oh, you were rather high-handed in your methods. You did not give me a chance. And I was a little hurt at your want of faith in me. But where am I to find her? There's no address on the letter. There's a French stamp, that's no, no, all. No, 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 Do not excite yourself. Leave it to Papa Poirot. I will find her for you as soon as I have a few minutes. Ah, Monsieur Jacques, my heartiest congratulations. I had to come and see you. What's going to happen to Bella? I went through all that to protect her, and now it's all no use. If I were you, I should not distress myself unduly. The French courts are very lenient to youth and beauty and the crime passionnelle. I've treated her shamefully. I should have told her the truth after I met Mart, but I was too much of a coward. Could you tell us exactly what did happen on that terrible evening? Well, as I told you, I came from Cherbourg to see Mart. The train was late and I decided to take a shortcut across the links. Then I heard a strange cry. It wasn't loud sort of choke and gasp. I came round the corner of a bush. In the moonlight I saw a figure lying face downwards with a dagger sticking in his back. Then I looked up and saw her. She was looking at me as though she saw a ghost. All expression seemed frozen out of her face by horror. Then she turned and ran. And afterwards? I thought I'd better get away as fast as I could. I went back to Cherbourg. Thank you. There is something you should know. Your mother has regained consciousness. I am about to go to the village in Vievre. Will you come with us? I will come, 
but I would like to ask a favour of you. Whatever you wish. How would it be if you went on first to break the news to Mother that I'm free? While you break it in person to Mademoiselle Martha. Of course, by all means. But let us be off. When we got to the villa, Poirot insisted on going up to see Madame Renault alone while I paced about the salon. It was some time before he reappeared, looking unusually grave. I would hardly have credited it, but women are very unpredictable. What has happened? I fear we are in for serious trouble. Madame Renault... Oh, uh, here are Jack and Martin. We came as quickly as we could. It is better you should not go up. Your mother is very upset. But I must no, no, see no. her. No, Monsieur Jacques. But Jacques and I... In any case, do not take Mademoiselle with you. And if you do insist on going I up... I thank you for your good offices, Monsieur Poirot. But I will make my own wishes clear. Mother. I am no mother of yours. You are no son of mine. From this day and hour, I renounce you. But mother, what have I done? Your father's blood is on your head. You thwarted and defied him over this girl. And by your heartless treatment of another girl, you brought about his death. Tomorrow, I intend to take such steps as shall make it certain. You shall never touch a penny of his money. Make your way in the world as best you can with the help of a girl who is the daughter of your father's bitterest enemy. Slowly and painfully, she went back up the stairs. Jack Renault swayed and nearly fell. The events of the last few days have proved too much for him. Now, where can we take him? To the Villa Marguerite. We will look after him, Mamma and I. A doctor was sent for, who prescribed perfect rest and quiet, and advised someone to sit up with Jack. But I knew that Marta would do that anyway. Poirot and I went back to the Hotel des Bains. Has an English lady, a Miss Robinson, arrived? Yes, monsieur. She's in the little salon. Uh, good. Come along, Hastings. But who on earth is Miss Robinson? Oh, go on, man. I mean, do you think I wish to trumpet abroad in Merinville the name of Duvigne? Cinderella. Thank you, Monsieur Poirot. Now, mes enfants, for the moment we have no time for sentiment. There is work ahead of us. Mademoiselle, were you able to do what I asked you? Here it is. But that's the dagger that... I thought you said you threw it in the sea. Trevien, I am very pleased with you. Now, go now and rest yourself, mademoiselle. Hastings and I have work to do. You shall see him tomorrow. Oh, no. Wherever you're going, I'm coming no, too. No, no, but mademoiselle... I'm it... coming too, and that is that. Oh, very well, but it will not be amusing. In all probability, nothing will happen. It was quite dark now, and there was a cool breeze. Poirot set off in the direction of the Villa Genevieve, but when we were passing the Villa Marguerite... I should like to assure myself that all is well with Jacques Renault. Come in with me, Hastings. It would be best if Mademoiselle perhaps remained outside. Madame de Broy might say something which would wound her. Do you see the shadow on the blind up there? Mm -hmm. That's Martha de Broy, surely. Then that is where we shall find Jacques Renault. He is still very feverish, but he is sleeping. That is the great thing. Maman made him a tisane. Is the doctor coming back? Not unless we send for him. We will come again in the morning. Uh, permit me to show you out, monsieur. 
I hope we have not troubled you, madame. Uh, not at all, monsieur. This is a trying time for us all. At least monsieur Jacques is in safe hands now. She will sit by his side all night with her embroidery. She wants nothing more than to be with him. If you should need us at any time, do not hesitate to telephone us. We shall be at the Hotel des Bains. Good night, madame. That didn't take you very long. I simply needed to see that all was well. You see the shadow? She's still at her post. Where now? To the Villa Genevieve. The villa was in total darkness. Poirot took up a position behind some bushes in the drive where we had a good view of the house. We were almost immediately underneath the window of Madame Renault's bedroom. The window was open. I do not expect anything to happen for at least an hour. So what are we supposed to do? Watch Madame Renault's room. It may be as long as two hours. Oh, oh my God. My God, where is she? That didn't come from her room. A light's come on on the other side of the house. There are two people fighting. Me, tonnerre. Francoise must have changed her room. Now, quickly, up the tree and through the window. But take care, Dulcie. Take care, nothing. This is child's play to me. Oh, the door of the room is locked and bolted. It will take too long to burst it open. Where is Francoise? Let me try. No, 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 it is useless. Francoise, Francoise. You're wasting your energy. I'm the only one who can do anything. Huh? Where are you going? I'm going to climb round to the window by the outside. Oh, be careful, you'll be killed. No, 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 you forget she is a professional acrobat. Let us pray she is in time. Monsieur Poirot, what's going on? Why didn't you tell me she changed her room? Where is your mistress? In the room, down the passage, this way. You can't get in. The door's locked and bolted on the inside. It's all over. What? She's safe? I got here just in time. Thank God you came. I was nearly strangled. Where is it? Over there. Dead? I think so. That marble fender's got a very sharp edge and it was a very heavy fall. I'm sorry. Sorry? But for you, I would have been killed. But who is it? The murderer of Monsieur Renault and the would-be murderer of Madame Renault. The figure was wrapped in a fold of some dark material. I knelt down and lifted it up and looked into the dead, beautiful face of Marthe de Broglie. No, my friend, it was not a dream. I simply don't understand. Surely it was Bella Duvine who killed Renault. She said she did. But that was simply to save the man she loved from the guillotine. But didn't Jack Renault say that he... He said they both arrived at the scene at the same moment. Each took the other to be the perpetrator of the crime, but neither of them was the murderer. It was a cold-blooded, premeditated crime which could only have been committed by someone who knew what the Renaults themselves intended to do. And then I remembered what Marta Dobrai had told us about seeing the quarrel with the tramp. What if she had seen the tramp's death and not been called away by her mother, as she said? 
And what if she had heard the conversation between the Renaults which followed? What possible motive could she have had for killing Renault? Money. Renault was a millionaire several times over, and at his death, half of that vast fortune would pass to his son. Or that is what Jack believed, and what Martha counted on. But Renault stood inexorably in the way of her marriage with Jack. She knew that he was planning to contrive his own death. She had only to step in at the right moment and turn the farce into grim reality. But what about the daggers? What, what about the one that Dulcie stole? Jacques had three daggers made. One he gave to his mother, the second to Bella, and the third to Martha Dobray. Oh. That was why I asked your little friend to search among her sister's effects. Bella's dagger was safe at home. It was Martha's dagger that killed Renault, and Madame Renault's dagger that was stuck into the body of the tramp. And then Marthe realized that she had to kill Madame Renault to prevent her cutting Jack out of her will. Ah, uh-huh. that was a, a little contrivance of my own. I persuaded Madame Renault to play that little scene in front of the young couple so that Marthe would be forced out into the open. Oh. What absolutely bewilders me is how she managed to get to the Villa Genevieve before we did. Oh, that is quite simple. She slipped out of the Villa Marguerite by the back way while we were talking to her mother in the hall. But the shadow on the blind. We saw it from the road. Ah, my friend, what an imbecile I was. It was the shadow of her mother. One is old, one is young, but the profiles are exactly alike. But for your little acrobat with her wrists of steel, we would certainly have been too late, and Martha Dobray would have escaped through the window. When did you first begin to suspect her? When she told us she had overheard the quarrel in the garden? My friend, do you remember when we drove into Merhamville that first day? Mm-hmm. You asked me if I had noticed a young goddess standing at the gate, and I replied that I had seen only a girl with anxious eyes. That is how I have thought of Martha Dobroy from the beginning. The girl with the anxious eyes. Why was she anxious? Not on Jacques Renault's behalf, for she did not know then that he had been in Merlinville the previous evening. By the way, how is Jacques Renault? Not much better. But he still knows nothing. He's still at the Villa Marguerite. But Madame de Bray has disappeared. The police are looking for her. Was she in with her daughter, do you think? We shall never know. Madame is a lady who can keep her secrets. And I doubt very much if the police will ever find her. What is your friend Giro going to say of all this? He knows already. (laughs) He has a crisis of the nerves. He has been obliged to return to Paris. A few days later, Jack Renault came to see us with a resolute expression on his face. Monsieur Poirot, I've come to say goodbye. I'm sailing for South America almost immediately. I mean to start a new life out there. You go alone, Monsieur Jacques? My mother goes with me. I shall try. No one else? What do you mean? A girl who loves you very dearly, who has been willing to lay down her life for you? Bella, how could I ask her? After all that's happened, could I go to her? Women have an 
infinite capacity for understanding. Yes, but I've been such a damned fool. You have a new and wonderful life before you. Ask her to share it with you. You may not realize it, but your love for each other has been tested in the fire and not found wanting. You have both been willing to lay down your lives for each other. And what, you may ask, became of Captain Arthur Hastings and his little acrobat? I never knew your name was Arthur. It's a closely guarded secret. But what am I to call you? It can't be Bella, since it isn't your name, and, and Dulcie seems so unfamiliar. Then you'll have to go on calling me Cinderella. And you all know how the best fairy tales come to an end. In Agatha Christie's Murder on the Links, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Captain Arthur Hastings by Jeremy Clyde, and Dulcie Devine by Madeline Smith. Madame Renault, Joan Matheson, Jack Renault, Stephen Tompkinson, Madame Debray, Petra Davis, Marc Debray, Francesca Buller, Judge Ote, David King, Inspector Bex, Geoffrey Whitehead, Inspector Giraud, Vincent Brimble, Sergeant of Police, Ken Cumberledge. The elderly servant, Francoise, was Barbara Atkinson. The young servant, Leonie, Joanna Mackey. The hotel receptionist, Danny Schiller. The doctor, Brian Miller. Other parts were played by members of the cast. Murder on the Links 